Welcome to Stacy on the Right, the podcast. With your host, Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. I love it when we have a great subject that we can unpack, and today is no different. We are chatting with Michael Tracy. He's a journalist and author, and he has this fantastic substack. He's Michael Tracy or mtracy.substack.com, mtracy.substack.com. Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Great to be with you. All right, so let's talk about your article. You wrote something at your Substack. It says, Political and media class solemnly commemorate six months of overwrought whining about January 6th. (laughs) I'm glad you enjoyed that headline. I do too. <laughs> so why'd you write this one? And what are you hoping people are going to get out of uh, the fact that I, I feel like you're mocking it a little bit? I certainly am. Well, usually there's no reason to have a six-month commemoration of any event unless there's some sort of ulterior motive behind it, right? I mean, normally, as I kind of snarkily mentioned in the piece, you expect small children to want to celebrate their half-birthday. But that's an understandable reason to celebrate a six-month anniversary, Um, whereas the people who are governing the country um, the first week of July this year all decided that it was, for some reason, urgent to reminisce about the events of January 6th as though anybody had been allowed to forget about them. I mean, this has suffused political discussion in the United States since the events unfolded. And really what I think is that it provided yet another opportunity for this kind of self-gratifying, uh, gratuitous kind of, uh, spectacle that politicians have made of themselves um, for having supposedly survived the uh, January 6th event. Um, you'll even hear them at times referring to themselves as, quote-unquote, survivors, as though any of them had been subject to any kind of uh, direct violence or even an attempt at violence, which was not the case. Um, so there's that one angle of politicians kind of using it to grandstand, which is sort of for the course. Uh, but I think there's a deeper issue, which is that there's another motive for why keeping January 6th front and center is such a priority for especially the Democratic Party. You know, on the 6th of July, Joe Biden put out a statement that was allegedly authored by him where he called it essentially January 6th, meaning, uh, I mean, he called it the most grave threat to the American Republic, more or less, since the Civil War, and said this, this existential uh, danger. And so what kind of political, uh, rhetorical opportunity does that afford to Democrats? Well, it says, and, and enables them to say, look, in order to stave off this reportedly existential threat, it's existentially necessary that you continue to vote for Democrats. And that's the line taken up by candidates throughout all levels of office holding in the U.S. I mean, I found an example of this Democratic candidate for uh, Secretary of State in Arizona who decided to announce his candidacy on July 6th by saying, you know, this was the attempted coup against uh, our democracy and therefore uh, vote for me. So um, there's that self-aggrandizing kind of political logic there for Democrats to keep this going in perpetuity to bolster themselves and bolster their arguments for why they should. They're almost entitled to 
be in office. And, and there's another aspect, which is the law enforcement angle. Right. So on the one hand, you have Joe Biden saying that these quote-unquote insurrectionists pose sort of existential threat. And on the other hand, you can actually look, anybody can, at the Justice Department's running tally of the people who have been arrested and prosecuted for participating in one way or another in January 6th. And you look at some of the actual offenses that they're accused of committing, and they include, and I just happened to pick one almost at random, from July 8th, this is a person from uh, Macon, Georgia, uh, one of the crimes he's accused of perpetrating is parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building. I don't know about you, that doesn't really sound quite like an existential threat to me. Um, it doesn't even sound criminal. Kind of- parading is something we often see on the streets of America, and we all enjoy it. I, I mean, we, we actually encourage parading. Um, people have to apply to be in parades. And also people parade around other areas of private life like Walmart. If you go down to the Internet, you can see many, many instances of people parading through Walmarts doing all kinds of sometimes ungodly things. And they're never prosecuted for it. Even when the police are called, they're rarely arrested for parading. Right. Well, the, the point is that, you know, if you, if you throw all these charges at these individuals and collapse it under the banner of so-called insurrection and actions which otherwise would be perceived as relatively trivial, like parading or demonstrating, um, that can be framed in the most incendiary possible terms, which is why insurrection has become such a, a focal point in the lexicon, which is why uh, domestic terrorism is constantly repeated to describe the events of January 6th. I mean, the FBI director, Chris Ray, he used the term domestic terrorism. And even yesterday, when you had the first person uh, who pleaded guilty to a felony uh, offense related to January 6th uh, being sentenced, the uh, the U.S. attorney overseeing that sentencing actually, in open court, described January 6th as a domestic terrorist event, by, and she did that to tar this defendant association as effectively a domestic terrorist so as to increase his prison time, even though he wasn't even accused of committing any kind of violent uh, act. So uh, there's a whole kind of confluence of political and uh, law enforcement uh, rationale into why this event continues to be front and center and uh, why certain segments of the political and media class sought to showcase their trauma, so-called, on the the six-month anniversary earlier this month. So I have have something that I, I think is uncovered, but I'm sure you have a, a lot more detail on it. And that is the number of individuals who were present in the Capitol building on the 6th who are presently being held without bail, even though they're nonviolent and there were no weapons present on the 6th of January. How do we go about highlighting their plight and getting them out of prison? Because usually you are released on your own recognizance or you are allowed to post bail when you have been involved in a nonviolent offense, no matter where it was, no matter what day it was, no matter what it was connected to, um, nonviolent offenders are not normally held without bail. Well, I think it's the way to go about challenging that set of circumstances for whichever uh, defendant it applies to is to contest this premise that domestic terrorism is in any way an apt descriptor of what occurred on January 6th. And theoretically, there should be some you know, cross-partisan support for that argument, because federal prosecutors and others in 
positions of state authority invoke the specter of terrorism to justify their accrual of power and to justify depriving the liberties. So that's that's a potential misfortune that could befall all sorts of citizens, not just those uh, swept up in these current January 6th prosecutions. So I think trying to puncture some of the hysteria around that event um, hopefully could maybe cause some of the public to return to their senses and, and actually have a more dispassionate analysis of what January 6th actually was. And I've always called it, you know, it was sort of a fall riot. You know, there were some, clearly some scuffling between a certain faction of the protesters and police. And, you know, if you commit violence upon a law enforcement officer, chances are you're going to be prosecuted as a result of the law. So that at least makes some sense with the subset of uh, defendants who are accused of doing that. But for so many of these people, really, there, there was a, and I, I mentioned in the Substack uh, post you referenced at the outset, there was one individual who was, who was arrested earlier this month who was only accused of being present in the Capitol Rotunda for 13 minutes, a total of 13 minutes. This individual was pursued uh, for over six months by federal prosecutors and then arrested for the crime of spending 13 minutes inside the Capitol Rotunda. So I, I think when you actually delve into the details of what certain defendants are being charged with, the absurdity of it and the disproportionality of the, of the punishment and public outcry becomes a bit uh, clearer. So that's what I would su- suggest in terms of readying uh, some of the uh, excessively punitive treatment that some of the defendants have been subject to. Yeah, I mean, so speaking of being in there for 10 minutes, so can we just for one second compare this to the um, confirmation hearings of Justice Kavanaugh? When he was in the confirmation hearing room, there were protesters outside scraping the wood off of the Supreme Court doors. Um, they, the Code Pink occupied the building. Um, they refused to leave. They had more people inside than they were permitted. And none of them were arrested. None of them were prosecuted for taking over the building, even though that's the wor- wordage that they used. They said they took over the confirmation hearings, that they were, um, you know, kind of seizing the proceedings in protest and they were going to resist the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh. And none of them were arrested for that. Yet these people are actually had the doors open for them by Capitol Police and they were invited in kind of, you know, hey, come on in. Should they have gone in? I, I you know, I, I, it probably wasn't wise, but it's not as if they literally broke in, although there was some banging on the doors, some glass was broken. I mean, there was a lot going on. But comparing the two, you can see where one group is being almost treated with reverence and the other group was allowed in and is now being prosecuted beyond what we do for people who are rapists, you know, pedophiles, people like that. They don't even spend the entire time they're waiting for prosecution in jail. And I think that disparate treatment stems in large part from January 6th being viewed with this incredibly outsized, almost, you know, metaphysical type meaning, um, where you have politicians with a straight face asserting that the U.S. government was on the verge of being overthrown. I mean, it's, it's beyond preposterous. The United States is the most powerful economic and uh, military force in, in world history, and this idea that because a, a legislative uh, proceeding temporarily interrupted on January 6th meant that the entire uh, government was teetering on the edge of, of collapse is just absolute nonsense. And yet, 
the the fear of that and the hysteria surrounding that, I think, gives license to public officials and people in the journalism world to treat this event as though it has no comparison. So they wouldn't even it wouldn't even occur to them to compare it to the Kavanaugh hearings. Or I can't even remember, you know, back in 2011. I don't know if uh, you, you recall, but there was this movement in uh, certain state capitals amongst organized labor and other um, kind of progressive left uh, constituencies to do something similar where there were bills being considered to uh, basically disempower uh, public sector unions. And you had huge crowds flooding into these state capitals and doing something relatively similar um, that the the January 6th uh, protester did. The basic premise was the same in terms of why they were there, what they were doing, expressing grievances, et cetera. Uh, but I think a lot of this stems from just the extraordinarily exaggerated significance that's being incessantly applied to January 6th as though like, the very fate of the Republic was hanging in the balance that day. When in reality, it was really just it was a ceremonial legislative procedure that had not much bearing at all on uh, the transfer of power. And, and I think you know, disabusing people of the illusion of the significance would go a long way toward encouraging a more rational understanding of what happened and whether the punishments being doled out are actually proportionate and consistent with any legitimate conception of fairness. Yeah. So I, I think the big deal for us is, you know, just to continue to seed the ground as much as we possibly can with the truth, which is it was a riot. It was a protest. It was nothing more and nothing less than what we saw in the streets of America. Actually, it was a lot less than the burning down of precincts and, uh, you know, federal courthouses and the pulling down of statues and the destruction of private property and businesses. It was a lot less than that. But in all intents and purposes, it was essentially a riot. And so the prosecution of the people who were involved should be limited to whatever prosecution is currently de rigueur for rioters. I, I'm so glad that you wrote this piece and that you have a, a substack with fantastic articles that we can peruse. The link is in the show notes to Michael Tracy's substack and also to the article that we were talking about today. I'm so excited uh, that we had you on the program today and that you had time to join us. Uh, it's been real pleasure. Michael Tracy, journalist and author, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a great week. And so what we'll do now is I, I just want to touch on something really quickly that is so important for us, and that is the Alliance for Shared Health, their partnership with Family Vision Media. And what we've been doing is sharing this information. And I've noticed an uptick in the number of hits on my blog for the, the banner ad, people going over to find out about the Alliance for Shared Health. Sign up is super easy. And if you run into any difficulty, I can have someone walk you through that. Just use the contact form at stacyontheright.com. And I'll get you connected. I had someone tweet me, actually. Um, he was signing up and he had questions and he wanted to get those answered. I connected him with someone and then he successfully signed up. So we are really excited about that, the partnership and the opportunity for you to participate with the other 40,000 households who are sharing the financial burden of healthcare expenses, including needs sharing for critical illness, accidents, dental and vision. You can access a virtual care provider at zero cost, pick up your prescription from the pharmacy using the share prescription card, order lab and imaging tests at discounts of up to 80%. Listen, open enrollment is right now. Don't miss out on the chance to save 50 to 70% on your monthly premiums and make the difference in the lives of so many others like ourselves. You can reach out to Ash today, head over to StaceyOnTheRight.com, click the banner ad and sign up now. That's StaceyOnTheRight.com. 
Click the banner ad and start sharing and saving today. Alliance for Shared Health, changing healthcare and changing lives. All right, friends, that's another podcast in the books. Be back with you soon. Until then, God bless and enjoy. Enjoy.